My name is Brent Jurgi and I'm a member of the Summit Church. Um, I'm also a staff member at Agape Corner Christian Boarding School and have been for three years now. Um, Agape Corner Christian Boarding School is a Christian boarding school in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Um, it's a place where parents can send their kids to get educated in a Christian environment and also a smaller classroom environment that they may be able to be in in a similar public school. Um, throughout my three years at Agape Corner, the Summit Church has been instrumental in helping us and supporting us. Um, whether it's just college students coming out for a day at the park and playing kickball or college students coming to tutor or help out um, or, ad or adults taking a Saturday and saying, you know, we want to help you with a big project, um, you know, such as tearing down a fence, you know, helping out with landscaping or even help us rebuild the building, um, our school building that we renovated this last year. Um, it's just been great to see the church come out and help us in those areas. We have more projects to do this year. We have exciting things going on here at Agape Corner for 2010. Um, this, this upcoming summer, um, we have Serve RDU going on. We would love to have you guys come out and help us out, whether you're skilled or unskilled or just want to hang out and play with some kids um, for a couple of days. We would love to meet you. We would love to um, spend time with you, and we'd love for you to help us out here at Agape Corner. Good morning, Summit Church. All right, we had uh, the most incredible weekend last weekend. Uh, this was by far the most evangelistically fruitful weekend that we have ever had. Uh, it wasn't even so much the number of decisions that were made or the number of people, but the stories um, that were told. Sometimes, you know, you have baptisms where what you see are a lot of uh, people who have been Christians for a long time or people coming from other churches or traditions where they didn't baptize and, and they're going through that. But last weekend, I heard person after person after person who had trusted Christ either last week or sometime in the last few weeks. Uh, so it was an incredible, um, incredible weekend. I thought this picture was great. I'll put this one up here. I'll tell you why. Uh, this is what we took out there. My small group has more baptisms than your small group. Um, I'll tell you why. One of my dreams, you can take that down, one of my dreams for our church has been that there would be a day when the vast majority of people who get baptized here at the church uh, would not be people that I had a personal part of their story. Um, you see, like, um, rarely do people get baptized just because they hear somebody teaching or preaching. It's almost always because somebody has been involved in their lives. And when I first became pastor here, it seemed like the majority of people that were getting baptized, it was either coming um, from my or one of the other pastors' involvement in their lives. Uh, and so the dream has been the day when it would be the majority of people coming through that I, I didn't know at all. Uh, that dream came true last weekend because I just saw so many people who referred in the baptismal to somebody else who had invited them and brought them and, and been a part of, of seeing them come to Christ. I saw people who were brand new Christians bringing others. One guy that I know personally that uh, I led to Christ last year standing outside waiting for his dad who was coming to church for the first time ever. Um, told me also that his brother-in-law was getting baptized that day. I saw one guy who trusted Christ and got baptized this time last year, counseling other people who had trusted Christ last Sunday. Um, then there were the parents of one of our college students who said in the baptismal, our kids invited us to come to church with them this weekend. Uh, we didn't know why. You know, we didn't know why they didn't come home, but instead they made us come here. I was like, I know why. Um, but but uh, we were just coming to spend some time with this, this weekend, and we had no idea 
that this is what God had planned for us to change our lives and for me and my wife to be here in the baptismal um, here in front of them. So could we just at all of our campuses thank God together um, for what he did? I think the number that I heard was 181 baptisms. Uh, you know, whatever a pastor hears, he multiplies times nine and adds 10 to it. So we baptized over 1,000 people last weekend, so we should all be grateful. <laughs> all right. All right. In addition to that, you know that part of our calling as a church, we believe, is to engage our society with the gospel in the places where it is hurting the most. So we have identified these five different groups in our society that we think are some of the most hurting areas, namely the homeless, the orphans, the prisoners, the unwed mothers, and the high school dropouts or at-risk kids. Um, And I have told you that the ministries that we are developing to these particular groups are not things necessarily that we will run out of the church, but we want to release and empower you to go to them. What you just saw on that video was a story of one of our members doing just that. Um, how this ministry that we partner with, the Agape um, Corner there, the Agape House, is a great ministry, ministering to high school dropouts, at-risk kids, giving them a great chance. In fact, the guy that you saw um, has lived there for a couple years, two or three years now, developed a great business um, with them, just getting these guys you know, into, the, into the workforce. They have a lawn-cutting business. They do my own uh, yard, in fact, and he told me he would give me $5 off for any other customers I got him. So uh, if you would mention my name when you talk to him, that would be awesome, okay? Uh, all right, so um, that video, that, that is what our Believe Project is all about. Um, that video, these baptisms, it is so that we can continue to reach people, to disciple them, and empower them to do more of the things that you were seeing on that video. Like I have told you repeatedly, to the point of nausea, Building buildings is not our mission. Reaching people is our mission. And buildings are simply tools to accomplish that mission. I do not want to build a big monument to Jesus in the triangle. Because Jesus is not a God who dwells in temples made with hands. And his mission is not just to construct pretty buildings with his name on them. In fact, after three years of ministry, Jesus did not leave a single building behind at all. What he left was a church that he had told to go everywhere preaching the gospel. Not one time in his life or the apostles' life did they ever tell the world to come to the church. But repeatedly he told them to go into the world, right? So that means the greatest monument that we can leave Jesus is not a building but the changed lives of men and women in our community and in the world. So buildings are simply tools to that end. That is one of the reasons that we have believed that buying this warehouse where I am currently standing is a good idea, because we know we need a permanent home, uh, we need a hub location, and at this point, this seems to be the most efficient option for us. It may not be as pretty as if we built something from the ground up, but it will be efficient and it will be effective and it will allow us to continue to use our resources to pursue our real mission, which is people and not buildings. That's also why we have chosen to pursue the multi-campus approach. We know that it is easier to reach people when you are close to them. So our strategy is not just a big to build one big, huge building and ask people from all over the triangle to come visit it. Our strategy is to tell people, stay where you are, serve where you live. Let's be the church in that community. So while we are trying to have a facility in the Briar Creek area that facilitates this large population, 
We're also, we also have other campuses which join us right now um, and are a part of our service. Um, we are, are going to, Lord willing, be launching one in October, uh, October-ish, uh, somewhere in North Raleigh. And so that's part of our strategy. Our mission is not a building. It is you, you taking Jesus to the people where they are. Today, I believe we are going to take a huge step forward in accomplishing just that. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to walk you through a passage that really speaks to our mission as a church. And then we're going to, at the end of our services, take up our Believe Project offering that we've been talking about for a while that is hopefully going to allow us to take a huge step forward in pursuing our mission. And I really want you to pay attention, all right, as we go through this passage. Uh, Our studies showed that 50% of the people who will give to this Believe Project offering did not know what they were going to give when they came in today. Okay, so I want you to pay attention. Um, And God, by the way, God told me that somebody in here, somebody in our services, um, somebody who didn't even know they were going to give today is going to give a million dollars before this is over. (laughs) Maybe he didn't tell me exactly that, okay? But but, uh, in fact, he didn't tell me that at all. But... uh, if that would help you pay attention, that would be great, because maybe it's you. Um, no, I, I do want you to pay attention, because I, um, I want you to understand why we're doing what we're doing. And I also want to tell you that if you're a guest, um, I'm not directly talking to you today. Um, I'm glad you're here, and I hope that you can learn some things about who we are as a church and what we do, and hopefully learn some things about the spirit of Jesus and his mission in the world, but I am not talking to you or asking you directly for something, okay? We're just glad that you guys are here. Acts chapter 3, if you have your Bible. Acts 3, Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. While you were turning there, while you turn there, I was just telling you that this week I was thinking about how much I have loved, talking to my wife about this, how much I have loved leading this church now for the past eight years. I've been told by one of my mentors that you don't really become a pastor anywhere until you've been there for nine years. So I got one more year to practice and then we start the real thing. All right, but it has been my privilege for the last eight years to stand up here each week and to yell at you from the Bible. And for whatever reason, you keep coming back, and it's been one of the greatest privileges and joys of my life. So uh, I'm very grateful. I'm going to read a little bit of this passage, and then I'm going to show you a few things from it about the mission of our church, as well as how you ought to understand your own life as a follower of Jesus as well. Okay, Acts chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what it looks like. Verse 1, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, which was the ninth hour. That's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a lame man from birth, that is not lame like loser, but lame like a guy who can't walk. All right, in case you were wondering about that. Um, He was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter, and I love this phrase, directed his gaze at him. We'll come back to that. As did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. Would you, just for a minute, try to imagine what this must have been like? Immediately, his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk. 
and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. You just get the image of a guy for the first time in years is walking and he's doing that thing that like 13-year-old boys do where he's always trying to touch the highest thing he can. He's going to the temple trying to touch the tops of the doors. He's leaping and he's praising God and giving people the, the body bump and the high five and it's, it's awesome. Here's the first point that I want to make to you. Number one, in the midst of the mass spiritual awakening, God is concerned with the hurting individual. In the midst of a mass spiritual awakening, God is concerned with the hurting individual. Now, we saw that last week, didn't we? Remember Acts 8, we talked about the big awakening that was going on in Samaria, and then God takes this guy, Philip, and makes him walk 165 miles south down a dirty old road to a gas station where he can use Philip to encounter one man, one man. Here we see that again. At the end of Acts 2, 3,000 people have come to Christ, plus their families. So 10,000 people have come to Christ. As a result of one of Peter's sermons, there are crowds, there are excitement, there's activity. Out of that excitement that ends Acts 2, Acts 3 opens up with a focus on one man. You see what happens here in Acts over and over again. You go from the large crowd to the one. This is a repeated, pat, repeated pattern. And here's why. It is easy to forget in the midst of all the activity and all the growth that God is concerned with individuals all around us in need. And God sends his messengers, that's you, away from all the activity to the person of great need. Summit Church, in the midst of explosive growth, we are never to take our eyes off the individuals in our society who are of great need, individuals who are hurting. That's what is behind the identification of these five areas. Think of these, if you will, as the lame men in our society that we need to direct our gaze upon, like Peter did for this man. Let me explain to you a little of how we as a church together are doing that. I've told you that we give somewhere around 21% of our budget away out of this church, get rid of it, to take the gospel into places where the gospel is not flourishing. Some of that goes right here to our own city. Some of it goes around the world. We have as a goal planting a thousand churches in 40 years. In the last few years, we planted or helped to plant one in Youngstown, Ohio, one in Richmond, Virginia, one in Greenville, North Carolina, one here in Southeast Raleigh, and another in New York City, downtown New York City, Manhattan. We're preparing, Lord willing, to launch one in Denver next year. Right, that's where a lot of that 21% goes. A lot of that same money goes to, to meet needs right here in our own community. For example, for the last four years in a row, we have built a house for somebody in Durham who needed one. And your church, our church, has given, in most cases, the entire amount to build the house. In some one case, most of the money to build the house. Um, those included a house for Payshawn Murillo, Aretha Jackson, um, uh, you not only provided the money to do that, but uh, the labor to get that house built. Last year, we helped build a facility for the Agape House, which works with at-risk teenagers, which you saw the video about earlier. And those guys that are a part of that house are a part of our church and are here just about every week. In addition to that, you've been a, a part of helping to renovate 12 schools. Our, our projects in these schools, by the way, are not just about the facilities, but they're about the individuals in the schools. Some members of our church have had the principals, the faculty, the families, and the students in their homes. You have spent thousands of dollars 
and given thousands of man hours renovating their facilities, buying computers and supplies, tutoring them, and taking Jesus to to them. And I want you never to forget this. In the midst of a great movement, God is concerned with the hurting individual. And a church must continually direct its gaze upon those individuals. Listen, our mission is not to build a great big church. That is a byproduct of what we do. Our mission is to reach individuals, particularly hurting individuals, with the message of Jesus. And if we got to build a great big church in the process, then so be it. But the focus is on individuals. One of my favorite baptisms from last week, it was a UNC girl, a, a college student, who when they asked her why she was coming to be baptized, um, she stood up there in the baptism and she said this. I, this is an exact quote. She said, why are you coming to be baptized? She said, because I've been bad and I'm a child of wrath and God has reconciled me to himself and saved me. And I was standing there in the audience and I was like, that was bold. That was bold. Uh, and I thought for sure this is a seminary student who was getting baptized because when you drop the phrase child of wrath, that either means that you're a seminary student or you grew up Presbyterian. One of those two, Okay. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, that has to be a seminary student or a a, a Presbyterian coming to our church. And so she found me afterwards, and she said this. uh, She sought me out. She said, I've never had a chance to meet you. Um, I just wanted to thank you for for the teaching that you give and and, and just the church, what it is. She said, first time I came to church here was a couple months ago. Um, First time I've been in church in a long time, and you were preaching on Ephesians 2. And you were reading from Ephesians 2, and it opens up talking about how bad we are, how we are children of wrath. Um, how we are disobedient. And she said, as you began to do that, she said, this despair kind of swept into my heart because that's what my parents had always told me. She said, my parents weren't Christians, but they'd always told me that I was a child of wrath. They didn't use those words, but that's what they told me. They told me that I wasn't worth anything. And here I was sitting in church, and now the Bible was telling me the same thing. And I just kind of threw up my hands and said, great, this is what everybody thinks about me. She said, but then you got halfway through that story to verse 4, that passage in chapter 2 where it says, but God, but God who is rich in mercy and love, she says, and when you said that, it just washed over my soul because I'd never realized that though I was bad and I knew I was bad, that God had loved me anyway and he had cherished me and he had reconciled me to himself and that changed my life completely and tonight I come to be baptized to show that God has found me through the teaching and preaching of what goes on at this church. I want you never to forget that what God does is he focuses on the hurting individual. And maybe that is you right now. And maybe in the midst of all this, you're sitting in a huge crowd, and how how in the world are we supposed to know who you are? I don't know your name, okay? But you are here on purpose. It is not an accident. God has a purpose and an intention for you. His focus is on you. Number two, Peter and John reached this man in the streets as individuals, not in the church as pastors. Peter and John reached this man in the streets as individuals, not in the church as pastors. See, the thing I want you to notice is that this is not the big church as a whole doing this, but Peter and John as individuals. They'd taken off their hats as church leaders, and now they were just a couple of broke guys walking around downtown. The needy in our community will not be impacted by the church, but by you individually, where you are. You see, it's easy to start thinking, well, you know, God's doing a lot of this church, and I'm a part of that. 
Every week I get to sit and be a, a part of what's going on. You know, so in sort of like the, I'm part of the, the audience, I'm the laugh track. That's kind of my role here at the church. And, and, uh, and so this is, I'm a part of this and you are a part of it. I, I get that. But the church, listen, the church is not where God does most of the ministry. It is through you in the streets, not through me standing up here. I've often told you that the vast majority of miracles, like 39 out of 40, happen in Acts, not in the church, but in the streets, in the community. In fact, I'll make a couple bold statements here. I will tell you, venture to make this statement, that all the individuals who were baptized on Sunday that had come to Christ recently did so because somebody from our church had invested in them personally. Another one of my favorite moments last week was watching one of our pastors baptize his neighbors. Because see, that lets me know that our guys get it. They understand that it's not the ministries of the church, it's their ministry in their neighborhood. A girl this week left a comment on my blog. She said, and I'll quote, I got baptized on Saturday after being an unbeliever my whole life and actually trying to convince others, even members in your church, to doubt Christianity. I was first brought by my friend Carla to the summit. At first I thought the summit was crazy, but the music touched my heart. By the way, I'm assuming since she liked the music that it was the pastor she thought was crazy, right? I mean, you catch that? Because if she liked the music, then she thinks it's crazy. That's got to be me. Um, then I started believing, and soon God became my strength, and he has enabled me now to go through and endure the most difficult time I've ever had in my life when I've lost my husband. My baptism on Saturday was my profession of love and trust in God, and a bunch of my awesome small group friends were there to support me, along with my friend Carla, who has played a vital role in finding my faith. It is you out there, not just me in here, that facilitates real life change. Summit, listen, if we want to see, if we want our future to be seeing a bunch of Christians from other church baptized, seeing a bunch of people from other churches who are bored at their church, come to our church because we got a more exciting show than what's going on at their church. If that's what we want, we can do that. All right? I mean, you know, our music is good enough. Our service is peppy enough that we'll, we're going to have people come. If that's what we want, we can do that. But if you want to see people moving from darkness to light and being born again and saved and reconciled and redeemed to God, it's not because I'm a great teacher. It's going to be because you are investing in their lives. There is no other way. So here's the question. Who can you point to that you are ministering to personally? Yes, our church is growing. But is it growing because of you or simply around you? My wife said something to me recently that really convicted me. And she says lots of things that convict me, but this one was, was, was really a lot she said, you know, our church is successful evangelistically because it appears to me that you guys on the pastoral team, you pray, you plan, you think strategically, and then you work your tails off and make us work our tails off to make it all come together. And the result is the church is successful. Maybe the reason that we, we meaning she and I and our family, are not more successful at reaching our neighbors is because we don't pray and plan and think strategically as a family and work as hard at reaching them as you guys do at the church. What are you doing to reach your neighborhood, your dorm, your suite, or the people that you work with? 
Is it growing because of you or just growing around you? Right? You're not supposed to be part of the audience. You're supposed to be part of the ministry team. All right, verse 9. Let's go back to our passage. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 12, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made this man walk? Peter's all nonchalant like, what's the big deal? This kind of stuff happens every day. I mean, you know, when you've seen Jesus raised from the dead with your own eyes, it puts this whole thing in a different category, right? You're like, we saw a guy get out of the grave, God, lame man walking, big deal. <laughs> you know, it's just not that big of a deal. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. That was the purpose of this miracle. Whom, Peter adds, sort of parenthetically, you delivered over in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked instead for a murderer to be granted to you. This was the very crowd that had called for Jesus' crucifixion and had said, give us Barabbas, the criminal, and crucify Jesus. Peter's like, yeah, y'all remember that? Remember just a few weeks ago, y'all were like, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Remember that? That was a really bad decision. Because you know what? God overruled it by raising him from the dead. To this we are witnesses Verse 16, his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter is saying, this healing was a sign. It was a picture of the gospel that we are witnesses to. Just like the name of Jesus had the power to make this lame man walk, the power of Jesus has the ability to make your lame soul live again and i use lame there like loser like the, the way we use the word now to make your soul live again verse 17 so now brothers repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out number three it was the ministry of christians in the streets that amazed the community it was the ministry of christians in the streets that amazed the community you see the apostles ministry catch this was twofold word and deed they persuaded with their words and they amazed through their works they learned this from jesus persuade with your words amaze with your works i went through this week and i pulled out all the verses in the new testament that show jesus and the apostles with a ministry of word and deed it's too ministry to list all of them out for you, but let me just give you a quick sampling. Matthew 9, 35, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages teaching and proclaiming, there's the word, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, that's deed. Luke 9, 11, the crowds followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, that's word and cured those who had need of healing. That's deed. Luke 9, verse 1. And he called the 12 together and sent them out to proclaim, that's word, the kingdom of God, and to heal. Acts 8, verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him, that's word, and saw the signs that he did, that's deed. And then there was much joy in that city. Word and deed. And they're closely related together, by the way. The works are not just random magic tricks or random acts of kindness. The works demonstrate the word and authenticate the word. They are called by Peter in chapter 4 a sign. 
In other words, the sign points to the word. He's saying just like, just like the power of Jesus can give a crippled man the ability to walk, the gospel has power to give a crippled soul, a dead soul. Just like we can raise people from the dead, the gospel has the power to raise you from the dead, to save your soul. Here's why this is important. It is only when a community sees the power of the gospel in action that they become open to believing the gospel. It is only when an unbelieving community sees the power of the gospel in action that they become open to believing that gospel. Thus we are to persuade through our message and to amaze through our works. This is what God has commissioned us to do and empowered us to do. Now, I know what you were saying. I can hear it. I can hear some of your unbelieving little thoughts. You're like, well, well, Peter and John are all like, rise up and walk. Yeah, if I could do that, I'd go down to the hospital and be like, rise up and walk. Pull that catheter out. Pull that IV out. It's okay. If I did that to this afternoon, I would be put in prison and look like a fool. How are we supposed to do what they did? Yes, I will admit to you, sometimes when you try to imitate the apostles or Jesus, you can end up looking dumb. Okay, I, I spoke a few years ago down at UNC Chapel Hill, and uh, after speaking at one of these student things, uh, some of the, the guys, some of the students, and I went out to the dinner afterwards right there on Franklin Street, and as we're sitting outside at this little cafe, um, a homeless guy comes up and asks for some money. Now, I had just taught on John 4, which is the story of Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman, and remember the woman comes and Jesus asks her for some water, and she's like, water, water, what are you talking about? And, and he's like, hey, I got water that if you drank this water, you would never be thirsty again. So this homeless guy comes up and asks for some money to get something to eat. And one of the college guys, I could see it in his eyes, what was about to happen. He looked at this guy, and he gets this look on his face, and he's like, if I gave you money to eat and get something to drink, if you ate of this food and water, you would just be hungry and thirsty again. But I have a food and water that you could eat of and drink of, and you would never be thirsty again, ever. Just launch that out there. This homeless guy just was looking at him and just turned around and, 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 and walked off. <laughs> and the student looked back at me with this kind of innocent face. He's like, it totally worked for Jesus. But what would Jesus do? I mean, I did it right there. I, I, I understand. I understand that. And it's a great question. How are you supposed to amaze when very few of us are in the habit of walking around commanding lame men to get up and walk? Good question. Four ways in Acts that the church amazed the community. All right, I, I, I can only hit these really, really quickly, so stay with me. Um, number one is miraculous answers to prayer. Miraculous answers to prayer, supernatural works just like this one. I will go on record, okay? I will say this. I do not think we take nearly enough chances letting God demonstrate his power through us. I think you need to pray for God to do things that only God can do so that you can testify to that in the face of people who are not believers. In, in, in the book of 1 Kings, when Elijah wanted to prove which God was the true God, do you remember what the test was? Which God answers prayer? God doesn't change. That's still how he shows who he is. Peter knows that. That's why he's not even surprised when it happens. He's like, of course God did that. Because God loves to show off the power that is in Jesus' name. Supernatural answers to prayer. You need to have that as a part of your life. Here's the second one. Radical generosity. 
radical generosity, self-sacrificing, lifestyle-altering generosity that makes your neighbors ask, why on earth would you do this? I'm not talking about pocket change. I'm not talking about a little stuff. I'm talking about things that affect your lifestyle to make people say, what, what, why, would you, why would you do that with your money? And you say, because I'm the recipient of someone who's loved me more than I can ever tell you about. One of my favorite examples, and I use this quite a bit, but it's just so clear, is right here in Acts, Acts 16. When, when, when Paul's in prison and God sends an earthquake, and there's Paul, and the walls fall down, and to his left, he's got his freedom. He can go free as a prisoner. God sent an earthquake. And to his right is the guy who was holding him in prison unjustly, had beaten him the night before. And this guy, knowing that the prisoners are now going to escape, knows that he's going to be held accountable, is about to kill himself so he can avoid the shame. And here's Paul with freedom to his left and this jailer to his right. And Paul turns his back on his freedom, which he rightfully had. Turns his back on his freedom. Even God provided freedom. You catch that? Because he wants to go save this man's soul. And the jailer is so overwhelmed by this act of generosity that he falls on his knees and says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Seeing the gospel on display overwhelmed him and caused him, it amazed him and caused him to believe in Jesus. Here's the third thing. Joy in the midst of persecution. All right, so you got supernatural answers to prayer. You got radical generosity, right? When you give in a way that amazes people and makes them ask, why would you give your money this way? Here's the third one. Joy in the midst of persecution. God authenticates his message in Acts by letting Christians suffer so they can demonstrate that they got a joy that is greater than suffering and a joy that suffering cannot take away. Since we're in Acts 16, that's also seen in Acts 16. Now here's Paul having been beaten the night before, and he's in prison, and what's he doing at midnight? He's singing. He's singing with joy. And I've told you, I, I don't think that Paul was that good of a singer. It's just my intuition. He probably, on American Idol, would have been one of the guys that they showed at the beginning, you know, that were the guys that didn't make it. I don't think he was that good. But he was singing, and his singing showed that he had a joy that could not be taken away, even by the worst possible circumstances. And it amazed that jailer to the point that the jailer says, show me what you have that I don't have. Okay, let me give you an interesting Bible factoid. This is going to throw you for a loop, some of you. There's not a single instance of a believer being healed of sickness in Acts or the epistles. There's not a single instance of a believer being healed of sickness in Acts or the epistles. It's always unbelievers. Now, there are believers who get raised from the dead. That's pretty cool. But none get healed of sickness. In fact, it's interesting. No unbeliever ever gets raised from the dead. No believer ever gets healed from sickness. I'll let you chew on that one for a while. So what does that mean? Does that mean that Christians should not pray for healing for themselves? Of course not. James 5 clearly tells you that we should ask God to heal us. So yes, if you're a believer, you should pray for God to heal you or your relatives. Believing that God can and, and often will do that. But what it shows you is the fact that we can't find a single instance in Acts or the Epistles where God heals a believer means that God quite often glorifies himself in the lives of Christians by giving them a chance to show off their joy in him in the midst of pain. To show that they have a joy that is greater than pain. It's like we often say around here, God is glorified when sick Christians get well, but he's also glorified when sick Christians die well. 
When you can say, my body may be destroyed by cancer, but God has given me a hope and a joy in him that cancer cannot touch. That is when you amaze the world and you bring glory to God. When you can say, in the midst of pain, Jesus is a possession that is better to me than anything else that life could give and is a possession that death and suffering cannot take away. Do you realize, if you are in pain, do you realize that when things are not going your way, when it's all going wrong, that it is then that God has given you one of the greatest chances to glorify Jesus and put him on display. It amazes people when your joy is not conditioned on the things that their joy is conditioned upon. Here's your fourth thing, the love within the church. Unity between the races in the church, how they love and take care of each other. You want an example of that? Flip back to Acts 2. At the end of Acts 2, you'll see that this is what's going on. It's amazing, the community. There's a famous letter in the early church written by a guy named Aristides to one of the Caesars. And it's describing why the early Christian churches were growing so fast. Now, I'm going to read you a part of this letter. Keep in mind, this is one non-believer describing this to another non-believer. That's what makes this awesome. Quote, they, the Christians, refuse to worship strange gods. And they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored. And they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. I think I've mentioned this to you before, but in the ancient Roman world, because they didn't have the medical procedures we do, if a woman wanted to get rid of her baby, she didn't abort it. She just gave birth to the baby and then left it on her doorstep at night. And by the morning, the trash man would come along and throw it away. Christians became famous for these things called baby runs, where they would go out at two or three in the morning and they'd pick up these children on the doorsteps and they would bring them into their own homes and adopt them. They would care for them. That's what he's referring to right there. He who has gives to him who has not, ungrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christians find a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him like a true brother. In other words, they took in refugees. We have families who do that. We need more, but that's going on here in our church. They do not call brother those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the Spirit and in their God. When one of the poor passes from this world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. Another thing happened in the Roman world is that prisoners and poor people, whenever they would die, would just be discarded on a trash heap. And the early Christians believed that was not showing the dignity to human beings and so they began to get these bodies of prisoners and poor people and bury them at their own expense and that's what he's referring to right there if they hear of any of their number who are in prison or oppressed in the name of their messiah they all provide for his needs and if it is possible to redeem him they set him free if they find poverty in their midst and they do not have spare food get this they fast two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with the necessities this was the early church, and it was massively effective in the ancient world. Some at our church will be massively effective in our community when we are this way too. When we are people of miraculous answers to prayer. When we are people of radical generosity, lifestyle-altering generosity. When we are people of undauntable joy. When we are people of compassionate love within the church. It's like Francis Schaeffer said 30 years ago. The church, just being the church, is the ultimate apologetic for the gospel. So let me use this to comment 
on our mission as a church. Our vision is to see you, our people, mobilized and equipped to go out to minister to the community. Let me show you two pictures that I think serve as a good metaphor for how churches build. And you try to figure out which one I think is the better one, okay? It'll be obvious. All right, here, here we go. Here is, here, here, here is picture number one. Now, what is that? That is a cruise ship, and that is awesome. You ever taken a vacation on a cruise ship? It's all about you, right? I mean, they design a little profile for you. They know what you like to eat. They know what you want to do, and they pamper you. There are slides. There are daycare things for your kids, right? They, you know, I remember, you know, go, and I would order the food, and uh, at the thing, and they'd have like four entrees, and it took me to the end of the week to figure out that I could just order all four of them. Which one of these you want? I want all of them. Just bring them. I'll eat a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, it's, it's just all about you, and that's how a lot of people want a church to be built. Here's another way that you could build a church. That's right. That is a Nimitz-class aircraft carrier. Now, a few things about that, that ship. It's not luxurious, my grandfather served on one of those in World War II. It's like 19 people are packed into one room. You're not looking at a lot of comfort there. They cost money, yes, but it's built for an entirely different purpose. It's not luxurious, but it gets the job done. The thing can take out small planets, okay? Now, as a church, obviously we want to be the second one. We're not going to blow anything up here. Um, at the church. That's not our, our mission, but it is a good metaphor for us. You see, the work of an aircraft carrier happens not on the ship, it happens somewhere else. That's what our church is, is we are a place where you can park your plane here, that's fine, and we will spend lots of money trying to help equip you to take off into the community. But if what you want is a luxury ride, this is not the place for you. We do spend money, we do. But it's on stuff that helps us get the mission done. Summit, here's the bottom line. We know that God loves the man in Acts 3, and he is our mission. God uses us to get to him, and we build a church to empower people to help us get to him. Let me tell you something I believe, that I really with all my heart believe. The local church is the hope of the world. Do you believe that? The local church is the hope of the world because the local church is equipped to empower people to take Jesus to people like the man in Acts 3. If you believe that, then I need you to put your money where your mouth is. And I need you to give extravagantly to it because we got a very important step in front of us that we need to take with confidence and boldness. Just to review exactly where we are, we have purchased this warehouse where I'm standing as I told you, this is the cheapest way for us to get a permanent home, and now we've got to start getting to work on it, transforming it into a usable space. We believe it's going to take a million dollars to get a good, healthy start on it, just to get started on it. So we're taking an offering that it's going to be divided three ways. 70% is going to go to upfitting the warehouse so that we can begin to use it. 20% is going to go to one of our campuses that has some needs in the worship and kids area, and then 10% of it um, is going to go to help us plant this new campus in, in, in North Raleigh. We call this project Believe because we believe that belief unlocks the power for the mission of God. We believe that God's willingness to save people and his power to do so are nearly unlimited. 
We believe God wants to change people's lives in our community more than we do. We believe God loves the man in Acts 3 more than we do. What God's people are put here to do is to believe on behalf of others. Just like here in Acts 3, Peter and John believed that God loved the lame man and wanted to save him. So they stepped in and released God's power into his life. That's what we're here to do. We're here to believe that God loves our community, not to persuade him to, but to just release him to do so. We believe in a thing here, if you're new here, called intercessory faith. And it means when you believe on behalf of somebody else. A lot of times Christians use the word intercession to refer just to prayer, which is fine, it is prayer, but they make it sound like all you're doing is telling God a bunch of stuff that he didn't know was going on. Like you're God's CNN news ticker reel. Right, and he, you're like, you know, God's like, oh, guys, this is going down in here. He's like, oh, I didn't realize that. Thanks for letting me know. Next time, let me know sooner, and I'll do something about that, you know? No. God already knows what's going on. What you are put here to do in intercession is to believe on behalf of somebody else and believe and thereby release what God wants to do in and through their lives. We are to believe and then to offer, to give. The place we get this, if you're new around here from a lot of different places, but John 6 where Jesus wants to feed the 5,000 hungry people, right? Nobody knows what to do except for one little boy who's got five loaves and two fish and offers it to God, five loaves and two fish, otherwise known as a Hebrew happy meal, right? Not a lot of food. But he says, I believe that God wants to do this, and I offer it to God. And God takes it and multiplies it and uses it to feed the multitude so that there's 12 baskets left over. That's where we are before our city. We have to believe on behalf of our city and put our resources in his hands so that he can use them. You know, I read that thing a few minutes ago about the earliest Christians. If they knew that somebody had a hunger need, they would actually fast two or three days so that that person could eat. Here's a question. Would you be willing to alter your lifestyle because this community has a need and the need is for us to be a church that reaches and empowers people in all parts of its community. Would you be willing to do without certain things so that we can take this next step as a church? Now again, I know, I know that some of you say, I hate it when they talk about money. And I want to go to a church where they don't talk about money. And I understand that some of you say that because you came out of a place where this was abused where it was all, you know, kind of focused on the church, where they just spent a bunch of money on themselves. I can't answer for them. I honestly can't. I can just answer for us. And I tell you, that's not what we're doing. And if you let me be a little bold here, okay, the reason that some of you say that, that you want to go to a church where they don't talk about money, the reason for some of you is not because you've been in a place where it was abused. It's because you want to go to a church that's a cruise ship where it's all about you. That's what you want. And yes, I'm picking a fight. All right? You want to go to a place where they don't talk about radical discipleship. You want to go to a place where you sit in a room paid for by somebody else and it's all about you. That will never be this church. Save yourself and me a lot of heartaches and a lot of mean emails and just go. Go to a church where it's all about you. It's not about you. And you can't even really call that a church, by the way. You just call that a big audience. A church is a group of disciples. And disciples are people who are radically committed to following Jesus and are taking what they have and offering it to him and saying, God, use me and use what I have.
We're an aircraft carrier. That's what we do. And that starts, by the way, with me and my family. Veronica and I have pledged a minimum of $30,000 to this project over three years. And that affects the kind of cars we drive. It affects what we do on our vacations. It affects our lifestyle. But it's a joy because we want to invest in this mission. I'm not just telling you to do it. We're doing it. I believe in reaching people, and I want to leverage my life and my resources personally for eternity. I don't want to spend my life and everything God's given me on me. I want to go into eternity having invested my life in things that will continue and last forever. So this is it. This is our moment that we've been building toward. Here's what I want. I want all of you that are a part of our church, whether you're officially a member or not, but if you consider this your church, I want you to take out that envelope that was handed to you. We get, we've given you like 19, thing, 19 versions of this, haven't we? This is the same one, but we're giving it to you again, so you should have gotten that. If you're a part of our church, you need to take this thing out. Now, again, to our guests, I'm not talking to you. All right, this is, this is something for our members. Hopefully you can learn about us. If God is leading you to this church, you can pay attention, but I'm not asking our guests you for anything. What I want you to do, again, 50% of you don't, had any idea what you were going to do when you came in this morning. It's just the way we work as people. I want you to fill out this, this portion right here. And then on the right here, the section, it, it asks you a few questions. For some of you, we told you this is going to start by just you believing God and being obedient and tithing to the church. And there's a place to indicate that that's the step you're going to take. Below that, it says, beyond my giving to the general budget, I plan to give. And then that first line right there, is what you will give today. We have said that we would love to take in a million dollars today and because we know that people are people in the next few weeks, so some of you are thinking about this for the first time, no matter how many times we've said it, but you know, today we want to take in a million dollars, right? And we want to, you to put that there and I want you to put that into there and you're going to turn that in in a minute. And then below that it says, I plan to give blank to the Believe Project by December 31st. Some of you say, well, I can't really do anything today, but this is what I plan to give over the next nine months. Now, some of you have asked, you've like, well, if, okay, I committed to give last year in this Believe Project over three years. Is that in addition to this? No. Hear me. What we are wanting you to do, if you can, is to give as much of what you committed today so that we can get it in hand and start to do things with it. And then we're wanting to know how much of that commitment you made you can give in the next nine months because that will help us plan. I realize that for some of you that's not possible because the way that you structured your giving was, you know, it's all based on your income and you can't, you know, speed that up. But for some of you, it is possible. And we're asking for those of you that can that you give especially right now a special offering to that. Listen, I want you to hear this. I'm not talking about your pocket change. I'm not talking about some feel-good kind of stuff. I'm talking about lifestyle-altering decisions because you believe in what God is doing here. I'm talking especially to those of you who have great means. God gave you that. He doesn't begrudge that. He wants you to enjoy it. He does. He's blessed you. But he didn't just bless you for you. And do you really want to go into eternity having taken the resources God gave you and walk into eternity saying, I spent most of it on me, knowing that eternity matters more than the present life? Some of you that have been given great means, you need to think seriously about how you are investing your life because your 401k is nothing compared to what eternity is valued at. And you need to think about 
the lifestyle you're pursuing. You need to think about what you're giving. You need to think about this, and you need to say, I need to make some radical decisions about giving. Those of you that have been given great means, you need to think about this. I'm not talking about little feel-good stuff. I'm talking about lifestyle-altering stuff. Others of you in here, you're not people of great means. That doesn't matter. God doesn't need our great means. In fact, what we learn from the Bible is that God takes little offerings like five loaves and two fish, and he can does more, do more through it than we ever imagined. What, what counts is that you are investing your soul in it. That's why we are saying, listen, everybody in this church needs to be a part of this. Whether you're rich, poor, young, old, college student, high school student, everybody ought to be a part of this. If this is your church, you ought to be a part of this step because this is what God has called us to. So everybody needs to be a part. Everybody. In just a minute, we're going to give you a chance, okay? You're going to turn that in. I want you to, um, to fill that out. I want you to put down there what you were giving today and then what you can give over the next little bit. Again, everybody, everybody want to participate. It's time. This is what we've been working toward. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to give guests one more time. I'm not talking to you. I'm not asking for anything from you. This is our church and our mission. What I hope that you'll hear from all this, listen, what I hope you'll hear is that we have a message that God alone can save. God alone can raise the dead. God alone can make the lame man walk. God alone can forgive sin. That message is vital to who we are. That is the message we want to preach. We believe that Jesus Christ can heal and forgive and save the crippled soul. And the person that invited you today, I would encourage you to go out with them afterwards and just ask them why this is so important and give them a chance to explain it. The message for our guests, that's what we, we have and that's what's important to us for you. Let's pray. And then we'll take the step. God, give us courage to take this step. God, I pray that we as a people would be overwhelmed with eagerness and confidence, believing that you will take what we offer and use it beyond our wildest imaginations. God, I pray for my church. I pray that you would help it to see the value of the gospel and from our hearts to rise up generously to help reach our neighbors and the world with this message. God, help those who are our guests to see that there really is only one message that can save and only one Savior who can save us from death and hell. Holy Spirit, we want to reach our community. Empower us now to do so. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.